Isaiah chapter 40, we've made it as a reward for some of those tougher chapters. Uh, this is next level Isaiah. And it is radical in comparison. And so <clears throat> this evening, this next level Isaiah is the title and the subtitle is introducing Isaiah 40 through 66. There's so much here. I'm very excited. I was excited yesterday in the morning reading in preparation, reading through Isaiah 40. Just, man, Lord, don't let me mess this up. The first 11 verses of this chapter, chapter 40, were really like a prologue to the entire book of Isaiah. You could, you could have taken these first 11 verses and put them up front, but because we have the comfort for God's people, the mind of God, what God wants, where he's going with everything. We have that the word of God stands forever. We have him as the shepherd of the flock. And then uh, the last 20 verses of this section, uh, we have just the awesomeness of God. That is the proper use of that word awesome. Again, asking somebody, what time do you have? Two o'clock. Oh, awesome. That is not awesome. That's two o'clock. God is awesome. And it comes out when Isaiah heats up. In the, we're not going to get to the whole chapter tonight. We'll hopefully get 11 verses. And we'll get to the next section where, we, where he begins to talk about when God laid out the universe. He said, make it about that big. Just trying to, to bring us into this presence of how large our God is. And the, the, the encouragements are emphatic for the Jewish people at this time in their history and what they were go going to go through after the Assyrians and through the, to the millennial kingdom. Uh, for the New Testament church, that wasn't even a concept in, in the heads of anybody on earth. Uh, so first, before we have several things to discuss. The, the Assyrian Babylon thing, the author... And uh, before we even get to the first verse, but we've, we're moving now, Isaiah is in, in his address, away from the Assyrian menace, that dreadful threat that constantly hovered over the, the Jewish people throughout Isaiah's entire lifetime. Well, the Assyrians destroyed the north of Israel, and then years later they destroyed the northern kingdom, Samaria, they invaded Judah, took captives galore, slaughtered people uh, without number and mercy, and then they brought their armies to the very gates of Jerusalem, the, the Assyrians. Yet, uh, just as the prophet steadfastly prophesied, Jerusalem would not fall to the Assyrians, but he did say, it will fall to the Babylonians. But it won't be in his lifetime. Babylon, we're a hundred years away from Babylon becoming uh, the uh, superpower. And then we're 170 years away from the remnant coming back into uh, the promised land. And Isaiah calls it all long before it happens. And if you look at chapter 39, we're not going to read it, but take the time. But verses 6 and 7, he just tells you that Babylon's coming back and they're going to take everything. And so, so accurate are his prophecies that, of course, liberal theologians, that means unbelieving people 
who, who used, tried to attack the Bible. And our, our pulpits and in seminaries are infested with them. Uh, they challenged the authorship of Isaiah in these last 40, uh, from chapter 40 to 26, to 66, these 27 chapters. They challenged that. Because they can't believe that one man could write these uh, stern prophecies uh, addressing the, the people in the region and the righteousness of God, and then with such detail, look ahead to the age of the Babylonians and beyond. It can't be the same person, because they have not faith. And these 27 chapters from 40 to 66, the end of the, the book, uh, again, they're speaking to that captivity generation also, the people who aren't even born yet. Their, their grandparents aren't born yet. And those are the ones that are really going to benefit from his prophecies as Jewish people. The church is, on a, again, another, another level. And he's going to speak to them about their repatriation. He's going to speak to them about their Messiah and the kingdom to come. And so sure was the prophet when he gave these prophecies that he spoke many of them as though they were already fact in the present tense. That's how clear. He's, I mean, if, what's the problem? If, if God can create the universe, surely he can tell the future, especially to his prophets. And so those devil theologians, uh, they hate Isaiah's accuracy, and they scoff at his authorship in these last 27 chapters because they don't want God's word to be authentic. They do not want God's word to have this much power because if God's word has this much power, then they are accountable to, accountable to the God of his word. And so they, they try to cast doubts so that people won't believe. And they also labor to take shame out of sin. That is an admission of guilt by itself. If I haven't traveled to any of the larger cities in this country in a while, and I'm very happy about that, except from my living room. I watch things on YouTube, uh, all sorts of goofy things like road rage and what truckers have to just everything. Uh, the idiots at work is one of the, always one to cheer you up. But anyway, I get a look at what's happening in these cities. I like one of them is a, a lot of fire department stuff. And you get to see the cities. And they have these crosswalks painted with these perverted rainbow colors. They have a whole building, I just saw today, uh, a skyscraper with these, these colors uh, they want the shame out of sin, so that you can shame with with uh, you can sin without shame. Because after all, they're getting rid of the idea of being accountable to an absolute God. Well, the 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 those theologians who challenge the authorship of Isaiah are doing the same thing. The Apostle John, and he's not the only one, but he attributed the first section of Isaiah. Let's say, let's say it's chapter 6. When he wrote about the Lord's teachings and life, he said, Isaiah the prophet said, quoting chapter 6, 
Later, he'll quote Isaiah 53 and say, Isaiah said. So clearly, the Apostle John believed that the prophet Isaiah wrote both sections, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah and then the last 27 chapters of Isaiah. And he did not call into question the authorship of Isaiah. And I would rather believe the Apostle John than anybody uh, amongst the people. Some 200 years before the birth of Christ, the Jews had a writing called Sirach. And in that writing, the author attributed both sections, not trying to, just quoting those sections as being written by Isaiah the prophet. Christianity depends on facts. That's why we're careful to adhere to the truth and not, you know, become superstitious or goofy and start, you know, making prophecies that we can't back up. Because Christianity depends on facts. And it cannot be, Christianity cannot be ethically and morally true and at the same time historically false. In other words, you can't have a man writing about holiness and morality and lying about who wrote what at the same time. Saying that, uh, you know, I'm going to add this to Isaiah. But I'm not going to say that I did this because I'm, I'm going to deceive the people so that they'll believe what I'm saying, thinking it's Isaiah. Well, that kind of person is not going to write moral things. He's not going to write holy things. He's not going to write predictive prophecy. That comes true. And uh, this is, uh, of course, this is reasoning from the, the scriptures. So questioning the authorship of Isaiah um, is not even honest scholarship. This is important because you may <clears throat> come across somebody who's been influenced by these people in your travels, uh, attempts to discredit the entire Bible by casting this shadow of doubt. Uh, that's what the serpent did to Eve in the garden, and look where it got us. It is a very serious thing. It is not a trivial thing. And don't think that, well, I don't think that. Well, don't think that others don't. And do not think that others will not use it or be used by Satan to do the work of, of Satan. So in an effort, again, to escape truth, they lie about God's prophets and his apostles. They do, they do it with Daniel also. He couldn't have written those things. It had to have been written after the, the events. Uh, yeah, how convenient to charge the righteous men with being deceptive. Anyway, uh, Passing now from authorship to these last 27 chapters, which are a microcosm of the Bible in the sense that I'm going to lay out to you. The book of Isaiah can be called a Bible in miniature as it is um, outlined, as it's set up for us. There are 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah, and you have 66, and I, we have 66 writings in our Bible, prophecies, books, and letters, making up the scripture. The 39 chapters of the first part of Isaiah can be compared more closely with the Old Testament 39 books. There are 39 Old Testament books. And those 39 chapters of Isaiah really, in, in style, speak of the law and judgment 
and righteousness. Nothing wrong with that. But when you compare it to the next 27 chapters, there's a stark contrast. It loses none of its authenticity. It loses none of its strength of the law. It brings in grace that's not found as it is in, it's not found in the earlier section as it is in the latter section. So he emphasizes God's law and judgment and sin in the first 39 books, uh, uh, 39 chapters of Isaiah, matching the Old Testament. The 27 chapters of the second part of Isaiah do seem to easily parallel the books of the New Testament, and they weren't even trying. This is, not, this is not something Isaiah was trying to do, nor those who had come on come centuries later and gave us chapter divisions. They weren't trying to do this. It worked out that way. It emerged. These 27 last chapters of Isaiah, they emphasized the Messiah. I mean, just the 53rd chapter is just dedicated to the suffering Messiah. It is incredible. The New Testament section of Isaiah, this 40th chapter, it opens with the ministry of John the Baptist without naming him. John the Baptist is going to come along and say, that was me, Isaiah was talking about. Jesus is going to come, that was John the Baptist, Isaiah was talking about. It's phenomenal. Nobody can write like this. Because Shakespeare, in all of his creativity, Mark Twain, in all of his wit, they could not sit down and put something like this together. Even with the modern-day computers, the MIT geniuses, you know, they cannot come up with what we have in the Scripture. They either side against it or it sides against them, but the Bible will have the last word. And so this New Testament section, as I mentioned, opening with the ministry of John the Baptist, it closes Isaiah 66, well, Isaiah 65 and 66, closes with a new heavens and new earth. Isaiah 65, verse 17, Isaiah 66, 22, talks about a new heaven and new earth. That's the New Testament. Your Revelation chapter 21 and 22, uh, they close with a new heavens and a new earth. In between that closing and that coming of John the Baptist and Messiah, in between that, the material is dominated by Christ, the Savior King. So you have chapter 40 introducing, uh, you know, the, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And then before you get to the end of the new heavens and new earth, you've got all this information about the coming Messiah in the millennial age and his kingdom. There's other things in it too. But these are dominant features and they're going to bless us a lot. One of the reasons why Isaiah is such a loved book by Jew and Christian alike. And so, as I mentioned, though, the chapter divisions in Isaiah are not part of the original inspired text, the comparisons, they're inescapable. Can't, if you know anything about his writings, you just can't miss them. And so as we go through these 27 chapters from 40 to 66, we'll see the application uh, to the Jews near the end of their Babylonian captivity. But more so, overshadowing that will be the prophecies concerning the coming king. Now, this 40 through 66 is also easily divided into three parts. From, From chapter 40 to 48, the emphasis is upon the awesomeness of God the Father, the awesomeness of God. 
Now, there is this emitting, this release of a Godhead, Trinitarian uh, structure to it. And so you have the Father being emphasized by just, you know, God, God. Of course, we see in that Yahweh, and we know Yahweh is, is Christ. Isaiah 48, verse 22, closes that section with this. There is no peace, says Yahweh, for the wicked. That's how that first section that emphasizes God's awesomeness closes. The second section, Isaiah 49 through 57, that then it begins to, uh, is dominated by this exaltation of the grace of God in the Son, the suffering servant. That section also closes with the same words, a little different, slightly, very slight. Isaiah 57, 21 is the last verse of that second section that emphasizes the Messiah, the Son. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And then the third section, the third section from Isaiah 58 to the end, chapter 66, it begins explaining the glory of God in the future kingdom, emphasizing the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, the first two are kind of easy, you know, with Isaiah 53, as I mentioned, and uh, in, in this chapter, the, the speaking of, of, of God overall. But what about the Spirit? You mean the Holy Spirit being em- is emphasized in Isaiah in these last chapters from 58 to 66? Well, I'll quote two of them. Th- well, three. Isaiah 59, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of Yahweh will lift up a standard against him. Isaiah 61.1, we know this one. Jesus applied it to himself. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. Isaiah 63.10, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. You can't think this stuff up. This is why this is one of the most comforting Old Testament books when you when you get especially this section 40 through 66. So rather than uh, further outlining much of what is coming, we'll just go through it together. But I do want to read some of these New Testament verses about these Old Testament prophets. Jesus said, blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For surely I say to you that many prophets And righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And he's telling the New Testament church, but the church is still not even born yet. Much more is coming. He's telling the believers that by seeing Christ, you're going to see a lot more than what the prophets saw, and you're going to better understand the things they wrote about. Peter said of his salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace of that of the grace that got that would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them. You catch the deity of Christ here. The spirit of Christ, Jesus, was in the Old Testament prophets. That just refutes everything the Jehovah Witnesses believe. The Mormons are just ridiculous. Every, I mean, you just refute them with common sense. But anyway, the Spirit of Christ, who was in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, 
They were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look in. Peter just had, you know, we, we had talked so much about Paul, and rightfully so, but Peter was right there with him. You look at Peter's writings, they're not, boy, they're not as good as Paul. Well, they're grammatically in the Greek they may not be, but far as content, they lack nothing. They are God's word. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawn dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. I don't know, this is fantastic verses. Okay, one more, Luke chapter 1. This is the father of John the Baptist, Zacharias. And he says, it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 70, As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began. He's saying there's no unbroken witness of righteousness. From the days of Abel, who was a preacher of righteousness, all the way uh, to Malachi. And then from Malachi forward. There has always been a witness of God in some form. Well, now we come to the first verse. Having looked, out, looked at the author, uh, authorship of this verse, the microcosm style of these last 27 uh, chapters, and um, also the transition from the Assyrian to the Babylonian front that the Jews will face. So he starts off this next session with comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. The translators have rightfully inserted, usually, an exclamation there. I've been waiting to teach from this section again for a long time. What pastor does not want to comfort the congregation from the word of God? But it's not that Simple. It's more complex than that because there are dangerous behaviors lurking, looking to attach themselves to us, and therefore to fight these things, the Holy Spirit is the one that guides the pastor, even commands if he's listening. Otherwise, uh, a man will tend to go in the path of least resistance and he will bury his head in the sand when it comes to the unpleasant sections, which, which may be perceived as unpleasant sections of Scripture, and try to grow a crowd instead of a church. You want to grow a crowd, you just keep speaking nice things. You just tell people what they want. You tickle their ears. You tell them what they want to hear. You want to do the work of God? You preach precept upon precept, line upon line. Uh, you, you don't hold back, but you don't look to be brutal, but you, you cannot censor the word of God. Lam, this is, we quoted this, I quoted this Sunday, Lamentations 2.14. Here's Jeremiah weeping over, uh, lamenting over the disaster of Jerusalem that he tried so hard to stop, that he was persecuted severely for trying to stop. And he writes, he says... Your prophets have, to the people that brought this on themselves, your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not uncovered your iniquity. 
to bring back your captives, but have envisioned for you false prophecies and delusions. They told the people what they wanted to hear. They let the flesh rule. And so when, when uh, uh, you, know, you read it, well, I want to always speak comfort and love to God's people. Well, you, you can't do that from, from a, a human approach. Uh, humans are sinners. We have to depend on the Holy Spirit and be guided into all truth through this relationship with God, which will come out when, when God says, well, he says it here, comfort, yes, comfort my people. That's an interesting and yet uh, uh, critical insertion by the Lord. How, how much do you think, do you, or let me put it this way, do you think, without calling out, Elijah, the great prophet who called fire down on, on troops, or Malachi, do you think they wanted to just comfort the people? Of course they did. But they had to deal with the beast. They had to deal with the monster of unchecked sin. And uh, God led them into those ministries. Well, Isaiah has been doing that, and now he comes to comfort. Yes, comfort my people. The Jews called, the, the Jewish people called this section from Isaiah 40 to 66 the book of consolation what? because of the contrast. Now, comfort is not synonymous with rescue. Unfortunately, it is relief within discomfort, but not necessarily from. This does not undervalue comfort, but it notifies those who are suffering through this life for righteousness sake that God is still present, that he has not disowned them. And so you can think, you know, some tragedy, a series of tragedies can hit you and you can say, as Jacob did, you know, all these things work against me. God was actually working for Jacob. But Jacob did not see that. Not at that point. He saw it later. David knew about this. In Psalm 35, he says, Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue me from their destructions, my precious life from the lions. And yet he goes on to talk about the presence of God with him. In Psalm 86, again, he writes, Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because you, Yahweh, have helped me and comforted me. So David is saying, let them see your mercy on my life and maybe they'll realize you're with me and leave me alone. It doesn't work that way oftentimes, but sometimes it does. But because of the apostate kings and the apostate people who love those kinds of kings, the Jews suffered. In Isaiah's day and beyond, and the righteous suffered with them. Isaiah suffered with them. So God gets a message out to those who suffer in his name, to the remnant that will be coming out of Babylon and are in Babylon. Relief is the ultimate ambition of God. That's what this is saying. When he says, comfort, yes, comfort my people. This is what I'm, I'm going towards. Consolation through prophecy. And prophecy comforts because we know it's a promise. And that's why the book of Revelation is such a blessing. Because it's a promise. It's a promise of this is what's going to happen and this is how it's going to end. And we take comfort in that. Isaiah 66 verse 13. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. We know that goes beyond Jerusalem. He just That's his audience. But behind the audience or above the audience stands God. God the Son. God the Father. 
The Father is seen as comforting the believers in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. As for the Son, Luke's gospel, and behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Well, he got to hold the consolation of Israel. It was Christ, the child Christ. Then the Holy Spirit. The New King James has substituted the word helper for comforter. And there's no loss in that. They're, they're both the same. The paraclete. It is, in the Greek, the paraclete is the one that comes beside you to comfort you, to help you. Uh, he will guide you into all truth. John 14, 16, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. So this is the direction God wants to go in with his people as we're doing his... Well, I get to that when we get back to John, John, uh, John the Baptist, because... The message is more important than the messenger. And yet, the one that is more important, Christ, died for that messenger. So it's tied in. But, you know, God looks at the life of his prophets. He says, they're expendable. That's what it takes to reach others. I'm going to have to lose some of my own so I can reach more. This is what martyrdom is all about. The world understands that. They send their troops in the war. Um, so God does the same. He is the Lord of hosts, which is his military title. He is the Lord of armies. That's what that title means in the, in the Old Testament. When you come across the Lord of hosts, he's the Lord of armies because there is spiritual war. And may we remember this when our flesh surges forward in a fit of insecurity or carnality or terror. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's what God wants to do. But he does it often without rescuing us at that time. Ultimately, he will. We get to that in the end, too. He says, my people, says the Lord. Now, this comfort that we're speaking about is is conditioned upon a relationship with Christ. The unbeliever does not benefit from this. However... We can offer them, too, a comfort sometimes in, uh, in life. And we see this, Paul the Apostle, when he was uh, about to suffer shipwreck with over 200 shipmates. And he said, he said, take heart. The uh, angel of the Lord stood by me this night. There will, that night there will be no loss of life. And he comforted them. But that was not spiritual. Uh, that was physical. And you say, well, what, why waste it on them? Well, because it is a contributing factor for them heeding what he has to say about spiritual things, too. In the workplace, if you are the worst employee in the workplace because of laziness or meanness or whatever else, then you want to go preach Christ to somebody, it's not going to happen. But if you are a hard worker and you're trying to do your best as a human being because of Christ, people will seek you out. When the Lord sent, we need somebody to send someone to. Verse 2 now, speak comfort to Jerusalem. Cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So he speaks as though these things have happened. They clearly have not. 
Jerusalem still suffers war. They will be conquered more than once from this point. But he's, he's, he's speaking uh, from God's view. And he's amplifying verse 1. Uh, he, actually, when comfort here is different from verse 1 in the Hebrew, this word for comfort, speak comfort in verse 2, is speak to the heart. Speak to the heart of my people. It's used by Hosea. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness, and speak to her heart. It's, it's translated, speak comfort to her, but it's the same Hebrew word. And there's, an, there's an, an endearment, there's an emotional attachment, there's a relationship there. This is not casual. This is something that's larger. And we who love the Lord, when you know, if you're a Christian, you're not afraid to love the Lord. That's why we, we love to sing. I mean, you can make yourself shy, and you'll be shooting yourself in the foot. I would not advise it. I'm not saying you should lose control either, because that's not evidence of the Holy Spirit. That's evidence of loss of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Self-control is one of the attributes that come from the Holy Spirit, one of the virtues. So, uh, God, you know, his comfort to us is never because we deserve it, but because we need it. And if you have children, you know their needs are a big thing for you as a parent. And that's because of love. And so our needs, uh, you know, uh, when we don't deserve the comforts of God, but we need them, and God is sensitive to that. He doesn't write, yeah, you don't deserve it. You're not getting anything from me. That's not our God. He's looking for a way to bring comfort. And sometimes it calls for some cutting through with the machete, through, you know, time, just hacking away, waiting uh, for these things. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Uh, the, the Bible is very frank with us. It does not pretend. Oh, don't worry. Life's just this wonderful experience. It is, never tells us that. It tells us in the midst of these things that we are to persevere. It says here in verse 2, and cry out to her. In other words, say this out loud. He's telling the prophet, this is your sermon. And say it out without shame that God wants to bring comfort to his people. The remnant Jews who would read this over a hundred years later, this was like a care package of prophecy for them. They would read this, they would be motivated spiritually. If faith was, you know, you, the strength of God motivates our faith. When you remember the Lord is with me, oh man, you just get these spiritual muscles. That's how Christians have gone to the stake and faced lions and other things in life. Even the ordinary things, even personal failure, personal setback. If you do anything, if you set out to work for the Lord, you're going to fail from time to time. But that's not the whole story. Satan wants it to be the whole story, but it's not. He hates it when we get up. Uh, anyway, cry out to her. As uh, we do today, we, we preach our message here. Her warfare is ended. Uh, again, that's future. Her iniquity is pardoned. God's solution to man's plight. And man's plight is personal sin, which is a product of original sin. Uh, Satan, and a, a very real, invisible opponent who causes much harm. And uh, then there's society that wants to paint crosswalks with uh, uh, perverted rainbow colors and hang it from buildings and, and yell out. How come the heterosexuals don't get to get a flag? 
Uh, you know, this is, well, you're not going to get any, it's always going to be a double standard with Satan, no, no matter what. But that just points out more of the folly that, we're beyond that. We're beyond pointing out their folly. We're now just dealing with sheer evil. Just evil in people that refuse reason, and yet insist at the same time that they're scientific and they're rational. Nothing new about that. Evolutionists have been pulling it off for years. Anyhow, coming back to this, for she has received from the Lord's hand, that is from the throne of God, double for her sins. That's punishment and penalty. The sin itself carries a punishment, but there's also a penalty. If you are uh, you know, robbing a bank and you uh, get shot in the process, but you survive and you get caught, well, you go to jail, but you also suffer from the wound. It's a double penalty. Well, uh, that's just logic, but the, the scriptural definition, the one that I think is the most accurate, is Exodus 22, 9. And according to that verse, a man had to pay double for a trespass against his neighbor. So if he, you know, um, accidentally uh, killed his neighbor's dog, he'd have to pay for the dog plus uh, pay for it twice. It would be a penalty. Uh, a dog's probably, you know, with, you know, and dogs weren't so unclean that people just never had anything to do with them. People are people in every age. They may not have been as embraced as we may embrace them, but I just throw that on the side because I chose dog uh, and, and as opposed to lamb. Anyway, uh, the appropriate punishment will be, it has a, a limit, and God knows that, and he's telling his people that these things are going to get fixed. Verse 3. Uh, as for the nation, for, for the people, the Jewish people. If you were a Bible-believing Jew in Nazi Germany, you'd be taking comforted, comfort from this. You see, yeah, they may kill a lot of us, but we're still going to survive because I believe in the Scripture. And look, we look back at that and we say, look at that. Germany couldn't get rid of them. They tried genocide, modern genocide, and it failed. Verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Interesting, uh, prepare a way for Yahweh. And well, this is applied in the New Testament to Christ. Christ is Yahweh in the New Testament, who, of the Yahweh of the Old Testament. Verses 3 through 5 here, concerning John the Baptist, are all, are all quoted in all of the Gospels. Each of the four Gospels quote this section. Isaiah's section of grace, chapters 27 through 40, begin where the New Testament begins. The forerunner, the herald, John's Gospel, chapter 1. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now, John was... Older than Jesus by a few months. Remember Elizabeth? You know, she became, you know, and when, when Mary came to the house, the baby jumped in her womb, but she was, that child was older. So what's John talking about? Well, he's, he's saying that Christ, the Messiah is self-existent. He's always been, therefore he's older than him. John 1.20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ, John the Baptist speaking. But he knew what his role was, and he embraced it. I'll get to that in a minute. He said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, says Isaiah. This is, again, John the Baptist. 
with, with prophetic symbolism, John the Baptist used a literal wilderness for his work. He's the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Well, that's where his ministry was. People had to go out to see him, which was part of his ministry. If you want this, you got to come get it. He didn't put it, you know, like, I'll just come and meet you where you are. He put his ministry out in the wilderness and he ate nasty things like bugs and washed it down with honey, which is sensible. I don't know. You can't really wash down a bad piece of... Eat a, you have a bite into a bad piece of fruit, you're done. You just got to suffer through it. You it's not going to... I know, because I just bad, had a bad grape the other day. Anyway, yeah, you know, you want to hear that. Coming back to this. Uh, John the Baptist, he claimed the fulfillment of this Isaiah verse upon himself, that he is the voice. John's Gospel, chapter 1, John speaking. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. You can't be any more clear than that. And he continues, make straight the way of Yahweh, which is in the New Testament. It's translated Lord because it's Greek writing. Um, as the prophet Isaiah said, just like that. So there's John saying that Isaiah wrote that second part that the liberal theologians protest and scoff at. Oh, he couldn't have written with such accuracy. Somebody else after the fact had it to John. I'm, I'm going to go with John the Apostle. I'll go with John the Baptist before I go with any of those doomed souls in that state. Unless they repent, they're not likely they're going to make it. Prepare the way of the Lord. And so, uh, so it's quite powerful. I've got to kind of speed it up here. Um, who else had so much go into the announcing of their arrival on earth, their birth? No one. You would think that the Jews would have picked up the unbelieving Jews. We've got to be careful because there were Jews that did believe. And it's not, you know, a racial slur. But those of the Jewish people that resisted the testimony of Christ and John the Baptist were opposing their scripture. It was already laid out. The path was already paved. The obstacles were cleared. And that's part of John's ministry. As he says here, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Metaphorically, it was spiritually a desert. They had abandoned. That's why John's ministry was so powerful. That's why people were getting, when they were getting baptized by John, it wasn't into the Holy Spirit. It was to uh, get to redevote to God, the God of the Jews, to Yahweh, to admit that righteousness was paramount. And they wanted to line up with that. And there's sort of this, uh, this outward sign of an inward doing also that they wanted to be purged of, of disobedience. Uh, the, the baptism of Christ takes baptism to another level. Well, he says here, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Clear the way for Messiah. The Lord's road was to be straight, it was to be level, and it was to be obstruction free. And all of that happened. All of that was satisfied. When Christ came, that road was paved for him. And if you were paying attention, as was Philip, uh, when, when, you know, Philip got it, Nathaniel, he was a little slow at getting it, but he got it because of Philip. And so he, Jesus, arrived without failure. It was not random. 
uh, he, he traveled a road without difficulty as far as what the scriptures said about him. It was undelayed. Satan could not stop it. And he tried, Herod killing the baby boys of Bethlehem. But the road was paved. And nothing was going to change that. And so this messenger, John the Baptist, again, was not as important as his message. His message was more important than him. Jesus Christ was the message. Yet no earthly king would die for their messenger. Our Christ died even for for all of his messengers, for all of his people. Another contrast. Verse 4, every valley shall be... Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. And so there you have verse 3 says that the Lord's road will be straight. Verse 4 says it will be flat level. And verse 4 also says it will be obstacle free. There will be an uncluttered path for Jesus when he came. And uh, it, it was. It was really nothing in the way but unbelief, the unbelief of the individuals. Uh, all uh, Coming back to verse 5 now. The glory of Yahweh shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. So some 700 years before Christ, that's where Isaiah is living. And he's saying, God said it's going to happen. All flesh shall see it together. The first coming of Christ was not viewed by all flesh. The second coming of Christ will be viewed by everyone on earth. And the armies that are coming with him, us, Revelation 1, verse 7, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. He's not going to be missed. How, how can this, just a mind working, what is just one natural way, that, well, miraculously natural way that could happen? Well, you could have a slow descent, you know, like a satellite, just, you know, taking his time, and he's like, oh, man. There's a lot of ways that could happen. Uh, anyhow, uh, the second coming of Christ. It's a phrase not found in the Bible. But the fact is taught, and that's what counts. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Well, Paul's writing that after the first coming. So you have to learn that the Bible does not have to come out and say certain things verb, you know, word for word, verbatim. The fact can be taught. The Trinity, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. The fact is inescapable. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three personalities there and one God. Uh, it's, it's, it's incredible. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In other words, this will be done. Uh, both path, pathways, the first coming and the second coming, uh, they are both prepared, they're not random, and they are unstoppable. Nobody going to stop that. Verse 6, the voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. Just like back in chapter 6, when Isaiah was called to ministry, he said, what shall I, you know, he, asks, he wants clarification for his message. And, well, he's doing it here. What shall I cry out? And he's, or, preach is, is what it means. What shall I preach? Uh, and the cry out part is without shame. And uh, he, he's told, all flesh is grass. And it's loveliness like the flower of the field. You say, well, 
Mankind knows that. That's why they've been searching for this non-existent fountain of youth. Uh, you can prolong, you can, you know, slow it down just a little bit, but it's no way you're going to stop the fate of life. Life is fragile. It's brief. It's temporary. And God is saying, if that is the case, what happens then? If your life, if you're going to fade like, fade like a flower, what happens to a flower when it fades and the petals fall? It's dead. It ain't coming back. Not that one. What happens then? And mankind is to think about that. And this is the prophet's message to bring, as it is our message today, keep eyes on eternity, the perishable nature of man, and the imperishable nature of the word of God. Be ready for that. Romans 14.10 For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You know, I could be very nervous about that if I looked at me. But I ain't looking at me. I'm looking at Christ. And he presents us faultless, faultless with exceeding joy. That's what I'm looking at because he's taught me to do that. All of 2 Corinthians 5, back the last few verses, talk about this reconciliation that Christ has achieved for us. So that we can enter his gates with thanksgiving in our hearts and we can enter his courts in praise. And we won't have to say, boy, man, I sure hope, Lord, I sure messed that council session up or I messed that witness up. Uh, You know, present me faultless with exceeding joy. Verse 7, the grass withers, the flowers fade, because the breath of Yahweh blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. So he's asserting the sovereignty of God, his authority of the living God in contrast to the dead gods. That he'll bring up the fake gods in the latter part of this chapter. We won't get to it this evening. But he's not forgotten for a moment that there are people walking around worshiping sticks that they've painted. It's even dumber. Uh, But anyway, uh, he's going to hammer that, and I can't wait to get to it. Because the breath of the Lord blows upon him, the sovereignty of God, surely the people are grass. The people are not divine. Uh, Everyone's strength, their their physical strength, this tent, it fails, it dims, it goes. But yet uh, there's a path for us to glory that is, um, well, we'll come to some of that. Verse 8 now, the grass withers, the flowers fade. But the word of God stands forever. So this is an emphasis going on here. But the God who wants to comfort his people is saying, let's just make sure we understand ourselves, who you are and who I am. Because if we don't get that right, we're going to have some problems. Uh, There are shallow churchgoers. And some of these shallow churchgoers only want to sing songs. They don't want the word. They cannot bear to be preached to. They can tell themselves, well, I'd like to go home and read or turn on the radio. God has ordained this style of ministry. This is something God has put together. And uh, it's, it's, it's worked through the centuries. Matthew 5.18, For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. First Peter 1.25 but the word of the Lord endures forever. He's quoting this, actually. Um, his application is, Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. And so, again, the emphasis on the word. Culture does not undo scripture. Oh, it does for some. 
to their own shame and guilt. Sin does not go out of style. Neither does God's word. Uh, there are some things in scripture that are cultural, but they're easy to, to identify because they're not given as imperatives or undone. Uh, the Sabbath day, we, do, we Christians don't have to honor a Sabbath day as the Jews did. Uh, the New Testament uh, puts that aside. Christ is our Sabbath, but you still can't murder. That doesn't go out of style, uh, although this, the, the culture can... The Nazis and Imperial Japan, and some would do it today if they could. They would, they would kill you for disagreeing with them. Uh, nor does God's methods of truth go out. I think the book of Acts is, is the way to go. Um, if I want to learn how to be a church, if I want to learn how to, to serve in the body of Christ, uh, the first place I'm going to go is the book of Acts. When I need correction about that, I'll go to Corinthians. Uh, so beware of pastors and theologians, because they can drink from poison mud holes like anybody else and flash their credentials or flash their office. I'm a pastor, you know, or I'm a, you know, I have a doctorate in theology. So what? You still drink from poison mud holes. You can still be a Judas. Uh, the word stands forever. The integrity of God's word. I believe God can create the universe. I believe he can speak to man. And I believe he can protect the integrity of his word. Uh, but not with people who have no integrity. Because they're going to believe what they want to believe. His word is one with himself. What he says is what he is. A part of a thing is not greater than the thing itself. It belongs to him. He is everlasting. So is his word. And the things that are fulfilled, of course, will be passed, passed away. Uh, so since Christ is the word of God, uh, this is true of him also. Well, verse 9, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up and do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. We might have to stop at this verse. Oh, Actually, this is the next section, and I should have stopped a verse ahead, but this one's too good, and um, we are not controlled by. Um, we'll, we'll do what we want to do. Anyway, God always wanted his people to be a nation of believers. Now, catch this, who loved their faith. Doesn't that challenge you and me? God wanted his people to be a nation of believers who loved their faith. He says, oh, Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. Oh, Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Man, this is unabashed Christianity. The world's trying to get us to be ashamed of our message. So much... Did God want his people to become a beacon to even the Gentiles, to invite them to belong by serving the truth, by telling the truth? And nothing has changed. We serve the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. And we tell the truth when we speak the gospel. And that's, uh, if, if, do we do it with our knuckles dragging? Oh, you know, like walking around like Eeyore, you know, always ashamed of ourselves or something. Because you know, we're not what we want to be. 
You know, I've noticed in me, when I see others succeeding sometimes in ministry, I feel bad. Not for them, but I, always, I feel like, man, I failed. Look at, look at the picture. They're all happy in the picture. <laughs> it's like, and I know it's, you know it's not real, it's Satan doing that. I'm going to behold my God instead. Oh, Jerusalem. So let's get back to this. That's what he's going to say. And we're going to stop at verse 9. So, Scott, if you could wrap that up for us. Um, anyway. Uh, oh, Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Well, instead of this, what happened? Oh, Jerusalem, you, you killed the prophets who have sent to you. No guarantee because God calls his people to a task that they're going to fulfill it. That's true of the Jewish people. It's true of the Christian people. Lift, lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, he's saying, preach without shame, behold your God. Reminding ourselves here, when we read this, of God's greatness when we are fearful. He's saying, do not be afraid. Look at your God. John's Gospel, chapter 1, John the Baptist, pointing to Jesus, said, behold the Lamb of God. That was not supposed to fade. We're not supposed to be, oh, he's the lamb. He's the one. And then problems come the next day and you just dismiss all that. We don't get to opt out. We get to opt in. The prophet told them to get their eyes off themselves. To look by faith to the great God who loved them, wanted them to be excited about their faith, and promised to do great things for them. Do not be afraid. Behold your God. I have a quote here. One old radio pastor from decades ago said someone sent him this in a letter. Look at others and be distressed. Look at yourself and be depressed. Look to God and you'll be blessed. I should have said I wrote that. I should have just lied. See, that's the whole thing with the integrity and, you know, it's just our, our, our faith is on fact and the fact of righteousness. Look at others and be distressed. Yeah, you look at the, the other guys, you say, man, I'm not serving as much as that guy is serving. I'm such a failure. That's a lie. That's your flesh lying to you. Look at yourself and be depressed. That's why I took all the mirrors out of my office. <laughs> but yeah, if you look at yourself, so, you know, you, you're not happy with, you, you're sad what you've, not be, what you've not become, and you're disappointed with what you've become. That doesn't mean it's so. It doesn't mean it's your estimate of yourself is right. What does God say? God says, look at me. The whole story of Jesus, uh, Peter walking on the water. Look to God and be blessed. And so the eyes of the people had long been fixed on their apostate leaders who were supposed to save them from the Assyrians, and they failed. Isaiah says, your foes proved too strong and your leaders too wrong. You need to look to God. So to address this, the prophet gave them hope. And we close with this. Look at God. Not uh, everything else. Let, let's pick up at verse 10. Um, and uh, we've, I, hope, I hope it's ex ex as exciting for you as it is for me. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your, just the comfort of your word. The strength that is in it. We Christians, uh, we love when you speak. We love when you show up in a very noticeable way. But you love when we stand strong, even when we cannot notice your presence, 
even when we don't feel joy. You love when we overcome through the blood of the Lamb, not loving our lives to death. We worship you and worship you alone. We ask you to get us all home safely this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.